Welcome back to the Out of Edge podcast. I am your loving and passionate podcast host, Dr. Stacy Gonzalez, here on the Out of Edge, where we talk about all things education. Ready today to have an edgy conversation. But first, let me bring my wonderful and amazing co-host, Miss Morgan Joseph, into the convo. Welcome, Morgan. Hey, come on down. That's really how I'm feeling today. I love this. Like people get in, in our pre-show conversation. I did a little like body move and you just did a whole little shoulder thing. We've got a whole shoulder shimmy. We're doing the shoulder shimmy on the podcast today. And our guest, and when we, we, you know, we overanalyze this in the, the pre-show again. So we're going to need somebody to come sweep this up for us. But go for it. We, we need I'm the ready. clean. Up. I got the broom. I'm ready. She's ready. So Lonnie Belkavist, Founder and partner of Imagine If uh, is here with us today. How did I do? That was actually really good. That was your best try. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see, practice. That's what it's about. And we're going to talk about um, Imagine If, but but really um, start us out with a little bit about who you are. Sure. Well, you know, like I said before in the pre-show, we can blame the Danes for the last name because it's my husband's last name. So I'm still working on it. We've been married for like seven years and I still have to like stop myself. So you did great for the the first time here. So glad um, I did. I that, I was so nervous. <laughs> yeah, it, it's good. It's good. Um, yeah. I mean, I was a teacher for a very long time in the U.S. and that's my background is actually as a teacher. And um, and I ended up stumbling on a school organization called High Tech High, which is in San Diego, California, and ended up, it was actually just down the road from where I was working, but I ended up really just falling in love with project-based learning um, and also this idea of really infusing authenticity into the work that kids are doing in school. So really figuring out how do we get kids thinking about the meaning behind school and and what it is that they're actually doing. So I spent many years just kind of eating, drinking, sleeping, high tech high. I was in my 20s. I didn't have a family. So just everything kind of evolved around figuring out like what they were doing around PBL, but also just, just the kind of culture at a school that really could sustain this kind of different way of working. And then in 2013, had this opportunity to move to England to work with a group to help schools actually do great project-based learning. And then I worked after that, met my husband, who is Danish, um, you know, fell in love, moved to Denmark, and then uh, worked for a foundation here doing very similar work. And then in 2019, started Imagine If. And really, our mission is basically the same. How can we help like really normal schools and normal systems um, do really authentic and meaningful work with their students. And most of the time that translates into project-based learning, but really at the core of what we're trying to do is promote that authenticity and personalization um, and really meaning for kids so they can see why they're in school and actually what the purpose is behind what they're engaged with. So that's a little bit about me. I've got three small kids. Um, My oldest is five. My next is four and my youngest is three. Um, so uh, I don't have many hobbies <laughs> aside from work and my, my family, but, um, but it's great. And, and now I live in Denmark. Wow. What a cool, first of all, what a cool journey. Um, from High Tech High, which has some great, right, rep, a great reputation. I have a couple of colleagues and friends that have really 
um, done that, but this whole idea of authenticity and, and meaningfulness, right? Like I think about meaning with that capital M, like what does that mean to really have authentic, meaningful, almost like this conversation, we hit it off right away. I knew, we knew this was going to be a great show and you're going to be a great guest. Um, and you talk about how you bring that to quote, you said normal schools. So talk a little bit about, right? Because public education, especially in the U S so big, so mirror down in this like bureaucracy and political, especially now. So talk a little bit about what that might look like. Well, I think it, it definitely depends on the context and depends on the country. So you, you brought up the U.S. and I think there are definitely some things happening in the U.S. politically, but also in terms of education that that is really interesting. Like there's a lot of moving parts. Um, I think there's a big push. There has always been for things like charter schools and private schools to take on perhaps an alternative education or more progressive education route. But I think we're seeing in the last five years, 10 years, that this conversation is infiltrating into the public system. And, you know, I think with everything, change is really hard and it takes a long time. But even, you know, like in, in my lifetime and even in my career as being an educator, like I've seen a massive shift in where these conversations are happening, which signals to me that although the United States is riddled with challenges in the system, there still is movement to try to change some of the thinking around what we're valuing in school, what's necessary for kids in the future. Um, and I think the system is probably one of the last things that actually changes. So our approach actually isn't to try to change the system. Our approach is really to win the hearts and minds of educators first and really try to help them to fall in love with this idea that, that school not only should be different, but can be different. And we can actually innovate within the systems that we're in. Now, it doesn't mean that it's easy and it takes a lot of creativity and cleverness to try to build in you know, authenticity in a system that's not designed for it at all. Um, but we really try to work on this kind of grassroots level and really view change as like one heart at a time. Um, it's really hard, I think, to look from a systems approach at this. I think you, of course, it makes it easier if the system changes, but, but I do believe that in our lifetime, the push has to be this kind of ripple effect on the ground. And hopefully we get the right people to make system change. But if we can actually win over the individuals who are working with kids on a daily level, then we can transform the experience that kids have. And that's actually more critical than the system. At least that's our thinking now and what our experience has been. Yeah, that is, and Morgan, I saw you're muted. I'll jump in and then feel free. Like you are spot on, right? Systems are made up of people and people are groups of individuals. And so I love what you talk about winning the hearts and minds, right? Because as you win the hearts and minds of educators, that transforms into students. Go ahead, Morgan. I was just going to really build off that idea. And, and I think change is hard. Change management at a systems level is hard, but I do think there are kind of, I'm sure from your work, you've seen indicators of readiness. So I'm most curious, like you were talking about this shift in the conversation. So what are you seeing as the biggest indicators that people are ready to make this shift? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. 
Well, that's a great question. I mean, I can speak for myself on a very detailed level. Like when I was teaching at this super normal middle school in San Diego, the first indicator in myself was frustration. I was having a really, really hard time being in this kind of system because it wasn't what I thought being a teacher was going to be. You know, all of these ideas around helping kids develop and helping them find out who they are and really being able to see kids on an individual level, that was completely removed. Like it was about taking all 38 kids in my class, running them through a lesson, you know, for 45 minutes out, next one comes in. And and you're also... um, you know, the measure of a good teacher in that in that situation is really about test scores. And, and it was just really hard. And after several years of that, like my own frustration just started, it just started to build to a point where I was going to leave teaching because I just thought there's no way that I can sustain this or do I even want to sustain this at that point. And so one of the things that we're seeing, and I think we see it as a negative thing, but one of the indicators is that we're seeing a huge shortage in teachers. We're seeing that we are not getting people entering the field of education. We're not being able to retain teachers in schools. It's a massive, you know, obviously systems challenge. But I think that that is one of the biggest indicators that we have now that people are ready to change. And you know, for me, project-based learning was kind of the answer. Like that was enough to revive my passion for being an educator and really got me back into that teaching mode. I'm not saying that it's the answer for everyone, but I do think that it makes a big difference when we start to actually take what school is now, clear the table and actually start from scratch in a lot of ways to really revive that energy again. I don't think that people leave education because they don't want to be a teacher anymore. I think they leave it because they don't want to teach in this particular system anymore. So there are, I think, individual indicators that, you know, push people to find different schools and different ways of teaching and learning. But I think as a, you know, society level, we're, we're hitting red flags everywhere. And whether we have the courage to, to see those as opportunities to really dig in and really figure out what we do with education is a different question. You know, typically things are like, oh, we need to pay teachers more or, you know, kind of the surface level changes. But I don't think that's actually what teachers really mean when they say that they don't want to be teachers anymore. So that to me, those are just some massive indicators that are popping up. And I don't think is going to get any better unless we really take uh, some courageous steps here to figure out what to do next. Wow. 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 That all, <laughs> all of that, right? I mean, you, you, you talked about some really important pieces and this whole dynamic. I've been thinking about teachers and have talked to many teachers who want to leave they're either on a leave this year. Um, they don't want to go back, but they're feeling like, I, I don't know what else to do because mm-hmm. I need to go back. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, with this readiness to change in this frustration with the system, um, how do we help empower teachers around some of these different ways of thinking to, to empower them? So they're less frustrated and feel more inclined to take those risks and be bold and still within the quote unquote rules of the game. Well, I, I think that's a that's a question that relies a lot on the individual leadership within a school and within like a school district, for example. Um, I mean, I know 
leaders in schools that have really given permissions to teachers to innovate or to do things their own way, especially with COVID and, and things kind of being turned completely upside down. And I think empowering comes from that culture of, of permission, if you will. Um, but that's a really individual answer because obviously some schools have leaders that are extremely scared of that kind of risk taking or they're very much focused on results or you know whatever it is. And, and so I think teachers that are in situations like that have a much much more difficult time actually seeing these kind of entry ways out of the system or what they've currently been doing. So I think a lot of it is leadership. But I also think that we are seeing, um, while it's in an informal way, an influx in teachers actually finding their tribe if you can say that. And there are groups like there's a Facebook group. I don't know who it was started by, but there's like 15,000 members and it's called Project Based Learning Support. And these 15,000 teachers are often posting questions about their projects. How do I think about this? Um, how do I make sure that this fits within, you know, my school or my, you know, context that I'm in? And there's, you know, teachers that are just pitching in from all over the world to help people people kind of problem solve these ideas. So I do think that informally, there are these networks that are popping up that teachers who want to do something more innovative, something like project based learning, but maybe don't have those permissions, or have the culture around them to do it well, they're finding these groups. And I think that actually, that might be my biggest advice, you know, if there's an educator that's like, I'm so frustrated, I don't know what to do, is like, find your tribe. And now that tribe tribe doesn't need to be in your school. It doesn't even need to be in your district. There's a lot of opportunities also in places like LinkedIn to connect with educators who are thinking in this different way. Um, so that would be my, I think, what a lot of teachers are organically doing, but also my advice, actually. Um, and others, you know, will find other schools, of course, um, charter schools or places that have more of those permissions. But working with leadership is a really big thing about what we do, their mindset and how they actually work with innovation. And Morgan, you brought up, you know, change management, which, you know, is not the sexiest term, but actually when you're dealing with innovation in an organization, it's absolutely, you know, what it is. Definitely, definitely. And I am wondering, as you have talked about a lot about leadership. And so I'm also wondering, how are you helping leaders take those steps to create spaces for teachers to be able to, to push. Cause I do think what you're saying about finding people who have shared values or shared interests. Like I've seen that a lot during the pandemic, there were leaders who were trying to come together to figure out like, what can we do and learning from each other. And really like the collision of the minds that was happening there was prompting people to think differently, but then also feel confident, confident enough to take a step out. Um, yeah. So I think I'm thinking once people are kind of at that place where they're ready to step out, how do you help leaders or individuals actually implement with fidelity? Because I think you can step out and you can try something, you're probably going to fail. But what really changes the dynamic is when people feel that they can get back up and try and try again. But I think you have to plan for that. And I feel like you have ideas and, and systems for doing that. So I'd love to hear about them. 
That is such a great question. And is actually something we grapple with all the time is, is how do we build this kind of culture that can sustain something like project-based learning or just any kind of change to what we normally do, um, whether that's PBL or something, something else. And I think we often work with leaders and schools around that culture piece. And unfortunately there's, there's no, I know there's books written about it and stuff like that, but, but really it comes down to like this relational uh, piece to the work that we do, where we really try to know the people that we work with and understand what are those fears? What are those things that's going to, like, if this project completely fails, what's the worst that can happen and how do we actually bounce back from that? So we do a lot of work with individuals individual teachers and leaders and whole schools to actually try to change some of the thinking around culture first. Um, but I do know, like from a leadership perspective, I can tell, and I just put a LinkedIn post about this the other day, but I can tell within the first workshop that we work with with the school, whether or not something like project-based learning is going to have like an easy path it's never easy, but, you know, like a, a path where it's really going to be successful. And as you said, you know, with fidelity and really sustain um, this kind of process over time, or whether it's going to be a path that's riddled with challenges. Like I, I can tell right away. And, and how I can tell is not normally what people think. It's not the mindset of the teachers. It's not how great the workshop went. It's not the kind of tools they have. What I do is I actually look for the leadership. And I see what they're doing. And when there's a leadership team that is sitting down, their computers put away, they're sitting with their team, they're involved in the workshop, they're asking questions, they're pitching in ideas, they're going around and checking in with people, then I think, you know what? this might actually have a chance because there is a culture here that this leadership team is actively involved and with their staff on this journey. Um, when I have leaders that, for example, and this happens all the time, they, they hand me like the presentation clicker and then they say, you can find me in my office. Let me know if you have problems. And then I think, you know what? This is not a leader who is with. <laughs> this is not a leader who is really seeking to be a learner and to understand. Um, and so in those two situations, the leaders that are with tend to create cultures that really allow teachers to fail and make mistakes because they are there with them to problem solve um, and to really be along on that journey. It's also their, quote, failure, and they work together to actually learn from that. The ones who kind of slip off into their office, I know there's a lot of really important things that leaders do, so I'm not making judgments about this, but the ones who sneak off to their office typically look back at the teachers and say, well, why didn't that work? You know, so there's, there's within just a few hours, actually, I can tell quite a lot about the culture of a school and, and whether or not something like this can be sustained in that kind of culture. Um, so typically after a workshop, we, we give some leadership feedback and um, that's kind of the first thing that we check on is like, how, how is this culture? Because a change in a school can't be sustained without a cultural, um, yeah, thing to support it. That was not very eloquent. Yeah, Cultural no, that, that, that makes, and it makes so much sense. I, I, I'm going to come at it from kind of respond to that from two perspectives. One, as a former administrator who, like you said, was the person who was in the learning with, right? There, there's something I could learn as the leader, so much to learn, right? And that came down to um, relationships 
and mm-hmm. having solid relationships and knowing I don't have it all figured out. Um, and as a decision maker who would partner with somebody like your organizations like you, it was always important for me when I was partnering with any sort of consultancy or any sort of bringing somebody in that I 100% knew that we were thought partners in the process, that they didn't also think I was just going to hand it off because I know my people and I I needed, you know, like the Lonnie's when you come in and you're going to work with me, I want to talk through some of the the interpersonal dynamics, um, which is really important. Um, The second part about that is um, as you're kind of working through this, how do you help people become partners in the process of that, right? Because you're talking about this deep partnership. So how do you help leaders and set them up from the from the get-go around maybe some of those expectations um, that you've seen? Yeah. And I just, before you answer, Lonnie, and I also am curious about how do you do that without alienating them? Because feedback is really hard. So I feel like there's like a really nuanced art to doing this. Yeah. Well, I should just say that I am super um, hesitant often about giving leaders like really direct feedback. So (laughs) I just want to say that because I've never been a leader and I also don't want to tell people how to do their jobs and, you know, like stuff like that. Like there's a bit very much an art around giving that kind of feedback. Um, But I I do think that one thing that we do from the get-go, especially if we're working with teams and planning, is that we require a leader to be there. And that's kind of the first like baseline. And when we are are in that kind of situation and we have a leader who is, let's say, in a planning meeting for a project, you know, we we try to work with them to think about, like, what questions could they ask this team? And we have some tools, actually, that, for example, have project designs and then it, it has like a rubric for kind of how to take the design of a project from maybe the normal project you do to like a really authentic and meaningful project for kids. And rather than just like us use that or give it to the team to start, we actually give that to the leadership and we say, okay, how could you actually work with your team or what kind of questions could you ask in order to, you know, move this team further or, or think about how to design their projects differently. So, so we try as much as possible to empower the ones within the school. And maybe it's not always a leader. It could also be like a counselor role, like someone who's going to be stepping into working with these teams in any like real way. And that empowerment part is really important for us too, so that no one is dependent on consultants for longer than they need to be, because we know that that doesn't work. And financially, that's not viable for a lot of schools. So it is that empowerment piece is always really important. Um, And then I think a lot of it does have to do with the relationships that we develop with the leaders themselves. So there have been some cases where I can feel right away that leaders are, you know, kind of a capital L leader and don't see us as co-pilots in this and, you know, kind of just turn it over to us. And a lot of times the first thing I do is just work on that relationship, just like you would anything is figure out what is this person into and, and how can I find an entry into that that's safe for this person, but also can help create this kind of partnership relationship. You know, surprisingly, a lot of leaders are very insecure. And and I say that with a lot of love and empathy and understanding. So I don't know that that always when I feel like a leader is not in with a team that it's because they don't think that they should be. But often I wonder if it's because they don't know how to be or they think that they should be something different than in that role. So with a lot of love and um 
patience and relational development, I think we, we often work to be in a position where we are partners um, with school leaders. And of course, there are a handful of times where even with that kind of groundwork, it doesn't it doesn't work out that way, um, which which is you know okay. Um, but then we also really try to empower uh, teachers who are on the ground or counselors or whatever to be able to be in that journey as well. So there's someone that is considered a partner to us, but also for the teachers and to each other. I don't know if that gets at your question, Stacy. I think roundabout way. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, there was a lot. Like, right? There's just Morgan. I don't know if you're listening. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is like right in line with many of the conversations Morgan and I have had around um, creating safe spaces where people feel really right. Because this work is very personal. When you are a teacher, when you are even a leader, especially in schools where you your bottom line is human beings. Like that's the ultimate. You're you're working with the the hearts and, and minds of human beings. Um, that is scary. I don't care if I have a doctorate. I don't care. You know, people will be like, oh, well, you're so confident and you know, to you, you see the end product. And it seems so like it was so easy for me to post that or to create that or to, to show up in that way. And inside, you don't know what that took for me. Right. Yeah. And so allowing people a really safe space and you frame it really nicely, um, around safety, and love, I think that, um, and, and I would imagine with that really comes, and, and you kind of alluded to this in some ways, a true understanding of like, this is this is a judge-free zone for lack of a better way of saying that, right? Like you are allowed to come in with the experiences that you have to date to, the, to this moment, and we're going to imagine together what might be. And so I'd love to hear a little more about imagine if, because that is just, that, that's so catchy. And that's so like, it's, it's such a great, I mean, branding from just a, a little bit of a branding standpoint, but I'm, it's got probably so much depth to it. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, you would think it does. I mean, it, <laughs> it does have a lot of depth. And, and, and of course, it is, I think, a great prompt that we try to bring in very much in, in the work that we do. But also, you know, as an organization, we try very much to continue with that imagination and hold ourselves that, that we have actually a responsibility to keep our head up as well to help people imagine because, um, you know, when you have a company, very often you can start to just get totally weighed down and overwhelmed with the practicals and all of the things that it takes. So we, we very much try to keep this imagination piece at the core. But Imagine If is actually, um, it, it was prompted by this conversation I had with Brian, who's an old teaching partner of mine from High Tech High, is now actually my partner at Imagine If. And we were just talking about um, just, I think we were having some drinks one day and talking about this, this kind of future school. Um, and we, we were talking about this need for authenticity and personalization and um, equity and like all of these things that are very foundational to both of us as educators. And we just started thinking like, imagine if. And then Brian, you know, it's kind of like this cheesy like movie moment. And Brian was like, imagine if. And we're like, imagine if, and all of a sudden this like kind of thing was born from this conversation. So I, I joke about it being deep because um, of course it is deep, but it is just who we are. 
you know, this, this comes from just something that runs through the both of us in terms of what we believe to be right and true about education. So there was not a whole lot of intention or thinking that much about the values that we hold or what we're trying to achieve. It's really in us. Um, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it makes it a bit easier when it comes to things like branding or, you know, the work that we do. We don't have a major checks and balances around whether we take on work because it's just something that fits within us and what our mission is or it's not and um, there is no like kind of discourse there it's just uh, kind of embedded in us so the name really came yeah I think from just a dreamy conversation <laughs> and a dreamy, I don't want a dreamy so conversation wine, <laughs> with some whiskey and wine or whatever it was right we're all good yeah. conversations flow from but I, I would I would also postulate that like that that was there and it was simmering yeah. and it had been something that you both sounds like you've had a partnership over time. And so when those, when you almost take those things that you've been um, in this, maybe more of a cognitive space, you know, through like who you said, who you are and in your heart, and then it comes out, it's just right. And so you go yeah. and yeah. You, you just start to execute. Um, and so that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it feels, it absolutely feels right. And it's been the right path for, for both of us. Um, but, you know, I think there's a bit of like, I, I feel a bit like an imposter when people start asking about, you know, the business plan and stuff like that, because of course there is one, but there also is just so much that comes from us and the work that we do that, that, you know, we don't follow a lot of the traditional business rules, I would say, because a lot of this is coming from, you know, our core and actually how we just work with others. So now that we're getting some, some new employees and some new people on, you know, we have to start actually articulating um, these things, how we work and what our values are and why they are that. So that's a, you know, been a new challenge for us. Um, but I think we've been pretty fortunate to start with this alignment of values, at least in the beginning. That's really awesome. I'm, I'm going to assume because you're in Denmark, this is more of a global company. Yes. Okay. I see you nodding. So <laughs> I, I think I yes. am really curious about what you've learned, like what are the similarities and differences you've seen across country cultures and education and how, what are things that you think we could learn um, mm. from these differences or if, or if somebody's doing something really well, cause I'm, a, I don't know anything about Denmark education <laughs> um, or anything really outside the United States. So I'm super curious in that way. Yeah, I mean, we we work with um, we work with schools all over. Our biggest project is here in Denmark, and we have a collaboration with the Lego Foundation to take all of the schools in this municipality and really transform them into playful learning schools. Is what we call them. So, um, we've got this really long term initiative here in Denmark, but we also work with schools in South Africa and Hungary and Germany and India and the U.S. and the U.K. Like we're kind of all over, um, and to what degree we're involved in those schools, you know, depends on the situation. But I would say one of the things that has emerged from this kind of global perspective is that everybody's talking about the same thing. Everybody is trying to figure out what is next for education and, and what does that mean for my school? And typically the schools that we're working with internationally are more front runners in that, in that conversation. They're schools that have really um, clearly defined already or 
acknowledge that what they're doing is not actually going to serve kids in the future. Um, and also they're, they're already taking actionable steps to change how they do school to, to make that shift, whether that's project-based learning or something a little bit different. Um, but every single country is having this conversation. So, so that's one thing that remains really consistent and I think is really inspiring actually, um, that, that it's not just the U S that's talking about this. It's not just Europe. It, it's literally everywhere. Um, it's schools in South Africa that have one teacher for a hundred kids, like in the middle of nowhere, they're having this conversation. So that I think is, is something to take away. The other thing I would just say is that there's really a diverse, um, system in every, uh, country. So what I mean by that is like the U.S. definitely has one system that that works or doesn't work. Um, the U.K. has something that is similar to that. Um, Denmark has something that's similar to that. But to what degree those systems influence like the daily teaching really varies. But every single country feels like they are under really tight restrictions. So what I mean by that is like Denmark has, I think, some of the, the most autonomy for teachers. They have they can teach how how they want. They can teach what they want. They have some like loose learning goals, but they're really open. I would say. Um, and a lot of teachers here in Denmark feel like it is so rigid, like they, they, they are so fixed in a box for what they have to teach. Then you go to a place like the UK where there's a group called Ofsted who can visit your school with 24 hours notice and basically close you down if they don't uh, see these certain checks and balances. And you know the teachers over there think that they're in a very rigid system, which I would completely agree with. And the US falls kind of somewhere in the middle depending on where you are. But every educator seems to feel like they don't have the autonomy they want. Um, and also that they really desire you know, something a little bit different. So I think it's relative is actually my short answer or long short answer to that. You know, like I think a lot of it depends on where you are, depending on how you feel about your system. Um, but I don't know that I've talked with anyone who really thinks their system is good. Like everybody is, yeah, I think really clear about the fact that they wish that things um, could shift and they wish that they had more autonomy in what they were doing. That's really interesting to notice that everyone wants to be able to kind of self-determine what's going to happen in their context, in their classroom. Um, but I do wonder, are there any promising practice that, practices that you're seeing for this more authentic style of learning that you're really advocating for? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there, there are a handful of, you know, charter schools or free schools that I would say are, are doing amazing things. And one of them is a school called Real School Budapest, which is started by some of the folks from Green School Bali. And they started the school a couple years ago and really have taken um, a lot of the foundational beliefs of Green School and kind of put them into this really urban context. And Green School, or sorry, Real School is also led by this fantastic um, school leader from the UK and they've just got a lot of really amazing minds working on how to like really imagine, reimagine this experience for kids. So that would be one school that's very much emerging um, in practice. And also I think is really going to, I think really be a conversation piece in the future. Um, in terms of like 
traditional schools or normal schools making these kind of shifts. I think Denmark is a really promising place to watch as well. Um, like I said, we have this collaboration with the Lego Foundation, and there's a whole municipality here that is shifting to do this kind of work. And while I think, you know, it is a process, it's not easy for them to do, there are some foundational things around Danish culture and the Scandinavian way of thinking about teaching and learning that really has made, I think, Denmark a really right place um, for this kind of work. It's a bit like Finland. You know, everybody talks about Finland and phenomenal based learning. And, you know, I think Denmark is a close second to that, um, but they're not on a widespread level. Like there's pockets of it happening. That's really, really interesting. And then the final place I would recommend is a school called Gesher School that's in London. And it's a whole, a full special needs school. And they are working to radically reimagine how they work with students who have special needs in this context. And it is just incredibly inspiring. Um, you know, I think a lot of schools grapple like with project-based learning and they're like, how do we work with kids with special needs? And here is a whole school that is going all in with super authentic and meaningful PVL. So they are also a school to keep in mind um, and, and also like a context that I just haven't seen anywhere else. I haven't seen anywhere else, like a full on special needs school dive into this and really create authentic work at their foundation. Maybe there are some, but this one is definitely going to be emerging, I think as a place to keep an eye out. So those would be my recommendations from, yeah, I think more in innovative, uh, like independent schools to, yeah, I think Denmark is actually going to be a place that, um, starts to do some really crazy things. That's amazing. And you're right there on the front lines of it. Um, uh, Morgan and I uh, interviewed Kamal Shaw, Shaw mm, who yeah, wrote a yeah. book, Consciousness and sure. Education, right? And, and I, you know, the longer, that was, I don't know, a few months ago, Morgan, right? And so this awareness, this consciousness and education is really rising, at least I'm seeing in the US. And like Morgan said, I have this, I have a more limited view, but to hear that this is, this, this is a world global conversation is really, it, it's so, pro, it makes me feel so hopeful and it's so promising because that just means that more people are ready to dip their toe in and take a little bit of a chance in a risk. And it sounds like you're doing both the top down and the bottom up work, right? So, you know, empowering teachers, empowering special needs students who've been many times looked at as like, no, we just need to put them there and basic whatever, right? And that is so the contrary of what I found with any special needs, quote unquote, special needs students that I've worked with. Um, so as we kind of, you know, wrap here, is there anything, and I feel like there's something that you need to say, and I don't know why I feel this way. I think there's something that you need to say about, um, having a three, four and a five-year-old, right? Is that what I heard? Right. That's, so like, I feel like there's, there's something there that, that there's some learning or something happening in that space as well, that, that is driving you or making you think in new and exciting ways. Um, and then anything else that, that we didn't, that you didn't share that you wanted to. And then um, our final question, which you alluded to, but you didn't answer, is where do you think education is headed and what will it look like in, in 10 years from now? So those are our, our last kind of pieces. 
Sure. Yeah, I don't know about the kids uh, thing. We had a rough morning this morning getting out the door. So I'm, I'm still in the process of missing them and, uh, you know, like trying to miss them at least so I can come home in a good way today. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's chaos at home most of the time. But I think what um, having three small kids has really done for me is real. it's really provoked me to understand the urgency of this conversation. And I'm, I'm not incredibly hopeful. Like my daughter just started um, school this week, actually. And, you know, for her, I think there, there are some possibilities for her educational experience to be radically different from, you know, kind of what it's going to be probably. But um, but I am hopeful that we're making inroads and I'm hopeful that we are, every conversation we have, whether it's a massive one or just a small one, you know, over coffee helps move some thinking and mindsets um, around this work. And I think while that's not necessarily the only step and only way to do it, I do think that it becomes more possible when we're willing to take on the big things and the small things. So I think for having small kids, I, I do feel a bigger urgency, but also I, I find myself needing to accept that in in my lifetime, I might not see these massive kind of inroads um, around the world. And I, I think I need to acknowledge that because working as we do, like very much on the ground with schools, we see how slow change is. And it is excruciatingly slow in some cases. Um, and for a long time, many years, I would come home and kind of bang my head against the wall and be like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> like, I'm going to go open a flower shop somewhere where I can just make flowers all day. I'm sure that's difficult, too, in many ways. But like, I just wanted something that didn't feel like there was a weight on my shoulders every day to go out and do something, you know, about what my passion is, but also what skills, you know, we happen to have. Um, so I needed to actually, I started like last year, like reaching out to some mentors that I just felt like could maybe shed some light on this. And one of them is Will Richardson, who is this like just incredible educator. I've been, a, I've had like an education crush on him for many years. And, and I just reached out to him and I said, can we talk? Like, I just need some hope. Can you just give me some hope? And, um, and we, we started, he said yes. And we had a cup of coffee online and he, he told me about this podcast. Um, called Hope is a Discipline. And it started talking about um, really these ripples that we make. And the woman that's in the podcast is one who works in the juvenile uh, justice system and has an incredibly difficult task ahead of her to help young people who are incarcerated. Um, and her thinking about making ripples in the water and how we might never see the outcome or the end of these ripples, but the ripples are just as important as where they end up. And I think I started to, with that same urgency, think about our work as ripples um, and also come to some kind of acceptance that it's not necessarily needed to see all of the changes that we're creating, but to acknowledge and to really um, fall in love with making those ripples as much as possible. So there, there's a mixed bag, I think, in this work. And you asked, where do I think education will go? Um, like I said, I, I don't know that we will see the end of those ripples in our lifetime, but I'm extremely confident that those ripples will continue to be planted and continue to affect other people. It, it already has in the last, you know, I, I can only speak, you know, the last 10 years or so. Um, but but I am confident about that. And I think that no matter what, that will be that will be important. And maybe that's all we can do 
right now is to just focus on creating those ripples. Um, so that's my long way of answering <laughs> two pretty short questions, I think. That's wonderful. That is exactly what we need to hear. Um, I love that idea. Hope is a discipline, right? And we keep showing up um, because we have hope and because we are imagining new ways mm -hmm. of, of um, expressing those hopes and dreams that we have for the future of, of your children, for my children, for all of the children in the world. And that sounded very Michael Jackson, right? But <laughs> that is so, we are the world, right? So um, that's showing my age right there. But I, I, so happy to have you now. I'm not going to get it right on this second time. I know it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try it again. So today, thank you, Lonnie Belkivist. No, see, no. I, nothing, nothing. I, <laughs> too much pressure. You hyped it up too much. I, I got my broom here if you need it. All right, yeah. we'll see about that. <laughs> right, right. Um, um, founder and co-founder of and partner of Imagine If. You can find them on Imagine If dot dk and lonnie we are just so glad that this this was a great way to start my day i know you're ending your day but this was just again um a reminder of there are people out there doing the good right work in the right way in the right time with with the right people so thank you for what you're doing for education Thank you so much for this conversation. And, I, you know, I always get something from it, too, like like your thoughts. But also, you know, it really helps me kind of reflect on what we're doing and be like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. We are all out there doing something awesome. So thank you so much for, for this opportunity to reflect on that and to talk today. Thank you.